Well, good morning. Great to be here with you guys and be able to come and preach. And I love preaching. I love the Bible. And uh, love people. Love the people of Squamish. We lived, Carla and I and our kids um, have lived, or we did live in Squamish for almost 12 years. Uh, and we made a lot of lifelong friends here. And some of which I wasn't even expecting to see today. James, Jill Marie, and uh, Matt and Janelle, who I thought, um, I was like, hey, they've all moved, I thought already. But anyway, but so great to see you guys here too. It was a nice surprise. Um, but if you have your Bibles with you, I would love it if you would turn to Judges, the book of Judges, which is the seventh book into the Bible. If you aren't that familiar with the structure of the books of the Bible, it's, it's early on, it's Old Testament, uh, it's got some great narratives in there, and we're going to be looking at chapters 14 and 15 today. Um, and the thing, the thing with Judges, let's do a little background before we get into the text, um, the background to it. If you just go to it and read it by itself, sometimes you're kind of like, what in the world is going on? Like, this, there's a bunch of crazy stories about a bunch of crazy people. Like, there's some, there's some wacky stuff that happens in the book of Judges, and if you don't see it in the context of what's happening in the whole Old Testament and with, in relation to the nation of Israel and things like this, it's, gonna, it's hard to get an idea for why these stories are in there. So basically, the, the time of the Judges was after Israel, the nation of Israel, had been in captivity in Egypt and Moses, God sent them a deliverer and sent them out through the Red Sea into the wilderness. And they disobeyed God, so they had to stay there for 40 years. And then he brought them another deliverer after Moses died, named Joshua. And God then stops the Jordan River so that they can cross into the Promised Land under Joshua's command. And so you've had these great deliverers in Moses and Joshua, and they lead them into the Promised Land, and they're there for a while under Joshua. They conquer their enemies in the, in the land and the cities, and they take over. And God's people finally are realizing the promise of the land. Not only are they God's people, and they know this, but now they also have the land, and everything's good and great. And then Joshua dies, as people tend to do. Joshua dies. You read about this in Judges chapter 2, as you get into the book of Judges, right at the beginning. Joshua dies, and then right after he dies, it says another generation grew up and did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, worshiping and serving the Baals. So you've had God deliver his people and do all of these amazing miracles, and then within a generation, they've forgotten, and they're starting to worship gods that they shouldn't. And so as they disobey, we get into this, as you go through the book of Judges, it's called the cycle of Judges, or uh, a cycle of rebellion and restoration, or however, there's different names that people call it, but when you look through the book of Judges, you'll see the nation of Israel disobey God, and they'll start to worship false gods and idols, and then God sends uh, another nation or another people in to conquer them and actually has judgment on them. So he brings judgment on them for their sin. And then they cry out to God for deliverance and he sends a deliverer. 
And then everybody's happy again for a while, but then quickly they fall back into sin, and then God sends judgment, and then they cry out, and then a deliverer, and it goes around and around. And that, throughout the book of Judges, you see this, just a circular pattern over and over. Everything keeps happening again and again. Except as you look at these judges, as Israel refuses to live according to their identity, you also see these judges actually start to not live according to their identity as well. So the judges start off really looking good, and they're, they're doing what the Lord has asked them to do, and they're men worthy of following. But then as things, time goes on, and you even get to Gideon, and he does some things that are really off base and he shouldn't do, and you move on and on into the judges, and they kind of, it's like this downward spiral that the judges are in, and it's symbolizing the life of Israel, that they're in this downward spiral. And you get to the end of the book of Judges finally, and it says, in those days, Israel had no king, which is really the whole point of the book of Judges, is to show Israel's need for a righteous king. And when it was written, it started to be written in the days of David, when they were in their, in their glory years, right? But what we're going to look at today, we're going to look at one of these judges. Over the next two weeks, actually, we're going to be looking at Samson. And Samson's life and story of him uh, starts in Judges 13 and the account of um, how his birth was prophesied by the angel of the Lord coming to his parents and saying, you're going to have a son and he's going to deliver Israel from their oppressors. And the, and the angel of the Lord actually even tells his mom, okay, there's something you have to do though for this to go the way the Lord would like it to go. And so what has to happen is you have to not drink any alcohol. You have to not touch anything unclean or eat anything unclean, which are certain types of animals, right? If you're, if you're familiar with the Jewish uh, way of living, uh, pigs are off, off, right? No bacon, no BLTs for you. Um, so that's what he basically is saying, okay, uh, I can't remember what her name is, but Samson's mom, okay, no bacon, no ham, I know it's so good, but no, sorry, you have to say no. And no shrimp, no lobster. Also, um, don't touch anything unclean, don't touch any dead bodies, anything like that. Uh, and don't drink any alcohol. And the other thing is that when he's born and he grows up, you have to not cut his hair. This is called a Nazarite vow that, that the angel of the Lord has placed upon Samson, who's not even born yet. He's still in utero, the little baby. But he's not even born, right? And so eventually, when he gets born, then he's not, they're not supposed to cut his hair or anything. But even as we look at his life, as we go through this, we're going to see what his life turns out like. And as we go through this text, there's going to be two points. Uh, the first one is Samson's wicked wanderings. And the second is God's good goals. And as we go through this and we see how Samson plays out, you're going to have a lot of questions about him, and we're going to see that God uses bad people to achieve his good goals. That's the big idea for today. God uses bad people to achieve his good goals. So if you have your, if you have your Bibles... Please read with me, starting Judges chapter 14, verse 1. 
Samson went down to Timnah. Now, Timnah is a city in the Philistine territory. It's one of the major cities of the Philistines, and he's heading down there. And if you are a Jew at that time, if you're living in the nation of Israel, and you know that your deliverer, the guy who's supposed to be delivering you from your oppressors, who are the Philistines at this time, is heading down there, you're excited. Oh, good. He's going to deliver us, finally. Going to wage some war against these people. But continuing, it says, And at Timnah he saw one of the daughters of the Philistines. Then he came up and told his father and mother, I saw one of the daughters of the Philistines at Timnah. Now get her for me as my wife. So Samson's goal in going down there isn't to wage war. No, Samson's looking for love. He's looking for love. He puts his hair up, you know, with never having his hair cut, right? He's got the sexiest man bun you can imagine. And he walks down there playing a little Barry White music. And he gets in there and he meets this lady. And he's like, hmm, these exotic Philistines are fun. And so he comes back and he says, now get her for me as my wife. But his father and mother said to him, is there not a woman among the daughters of our relatives or among all our people that you, could, that, that you must go and take a wife from the uncircumcised Philistines? Like, Samson, look at the selection we've got in this country, and you're the deliverer. Like, you are the strong man. You can do anything, and you can have any of these single women you want in our country. Yours, and you want to go down. You want that? I mean, that's like having the selection of craft breweries here in Squamish and going to the liquor store and getting a Molson Canadian. (laughs) Or having the selection of these great coffee shops like The Ledge, and yet... Going to McDonald's. Like, what in the world are you thinking? But nevertheless, Samson doesn't just ask for this girl. He demands it. He says, but Samson, or it says, but Samson said to his father, get her for me. Get her for me, because she is right in my eyes. So it doesn't matter that his parents don't like this idea. It doesn't matter that God's law at this time for his people say that this is wrong, says that this is wrong. No, it's good in his eyes. It's good in his eyes. And his father and mother did not know that. And note this part for later. It was from the Lord. For he was seeking an opportunity against the Philistines. At that time, the Philistines ruled over Israel. So Samson's supposed to be delivering his people, but he is not acting in accordance with his identity as their deliverer, as the judge. He is not living as he's supposed to. He's going his own way. Proverbs 14.12 says that there's a way that seems right to a man, but the end of its way is death. And Samson's going his own way. And step by step, we'll see him go further down his own way. Continuing in verse 5. Then Samson went down with his father and mother to Timnah, and they came to the vineyards of Timnah. And behold, a young lion came toward him, roaring, so there's some, some funny things happen here. He, 
He's got, like, imagine walking. You're in Squamish. I mean, there's mountain lions and cougars, right? Like, everywhere. So you walk down Government Road. You're heading towards Brackendale. And all of a sudden, a young lion's at you roaring. And so you imagine this. And in the Hebrew, this isn't a baby little lion like baby Simba at Pride Rock. You know, like this. That's not the type of lion this is referring to. This is talking about an actual violent, strong, young lion. Wanting him, wanting to kill him. So you imagine this encounter. You're heading down, to, down towards Brackendale, walking down Government Road, and this cougar comes lunging at you. You're not going to win this fight. But in this instance, then the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him, and although he had nothing in his hand, he tore the lion to pieces as one tears a young goat. You all know what that means, right? Like we're, everybody was doing that. Daryl and I were at his house last night. He said, Here, here's the goat. Let's just tear it. Like, this is where some of the ancient language kind of gets funny, right? They have these, these things that are well-known in their day, which are not well-known in our day, such as tearing a young goat. For us, it's more like tearing a cinnamon bun. Mm, <laughs> yum, right? So after that, though, he did not tell his father or his mother what he had done. Then he went down and talked with the woman, and she was right in Samson's eyes. So think about that. Why wouldn't he want to tell his parents what he had done? He didn't want to do it, but he didn't want to tell them because a lion is an animal of prey, and this is actually an unclean animal. So he would have to go through a ceremonial time of cleansing in order to be clean again. And as a Nazarite, he actually violated his Nazarite vow that's been on him from conception. And he didn't want to tell them. So and after some days, he returned to take her, and he turned aside to see the carcass of the lion. And behold, there was a swarm of bees in the body of the lion and honey. He scraped it out into his hands, and he went on, eating as he went. And he came to his father and mother and gave some to them, and they ate. But he did not tell them that he had scraped the honey from the carcass of the lion. So not only now has he touched something unclean, now he has eaten something unclean. And he has taken that unclean thing and actually contaminated his family. He's basically... Just saying, I'm going to test whatever I can against the Lord and see what happens. Is the Lord going to actually punish me? Is he actually going to take away all the blessings that I have and all the strength that I have because I break these vows? Or is this just some myth that I've been told about from birth? Does this actually matter? Well, right now he doesn't see any consequences. But he's breaking Nazarite vow number one, not to touch anything unclean or eat anything unclean. But he still didn't want to tell his parents because he really didn't think it mattered. Because it was right in his eyes. Samson liked doing whatever he felt like doing. And in verse 10 it says, his father went down to the or his father went down to the woman, and Samson, Samson prepared a feast there 
for so the young men used to do. So this idea of a feast was not just a, like a banquet that you sit down at nice tables and you eat, you know, waiters are serving you. No, this is more like a frat boy kegger. This whole idea of the feast is actually that it's a, this is a drunken feast. It's a massive party. So they've gone and gotten all the booze they can, and they are drinking, having a great old time. So what's he doing? He's breaking Nazarite rule number two. He's drinking fermented things. And as soon as the people saw him, and these are the Philistine people, they brought him 30 companions to be with him. And Samson said to them, let me now put a riddle to you. If you can tell me what it is, then within the seven days of the feast and find it out, I, then I will give you 30 linen garments and 30 changes of clothes. But if you cannot tell me what it is, then you shall give me 30 linen garments and 30 changes of clothes. And they said to him, put your riddle that we may hear it. And why wouldn't they take it, right? There's, there's 30 of them, one of him. Surely within the 30 of them, they're going to be able to figure out whatever riddle he tries to give them. And he said to them, Out of the eater came something to eat, out of the strong came something sweet. And in three days they couldn't solve the riddle. And of course they couldn't. Samson hadn't told anybody about what he had done. He hadn't told anybody about the animal, the lion that he had torn apart, and that the honey that he had eaten out of the carcass. So how is anybody going to be able to solve this? This is like hosting a fantasy football draft and giving yourself the first 12 picks. I mean, you've guaranteed yourself in a winner-take-all event that you are going to take it all. But your friends wouldn't like you if you did that. And Samson's, didn't, for Samson's friends didn't like him either. Samson wasn't living according to his identity. And so they said to him, uh, on the fourth day, they said to Samson's wife, entice your husband to tell us what the riddle is, lest we burn you and your father's house with fire. These guys aren't playing around anymore. Have you invited us here to impoverish us? And Samson's wife wept over him and said, you only hate me. You do not love me. You've put a riddle to my people, and you have not told me what it is. And he said to her, Behold, I have not even told my father or my mother. Shall I tell you? Young guys who are married, <laughs> you, you don't, this isn't an argument. You don't, you don't keep secrets from your wife because you keep them from your parents. You tell your wife everything. That's just a tip for you. She, went, she wept before him the seven days that their feast lasted, and on the seventh day he told her, because she pressed him hard. So he finally gave in. Then she told the riddle to her people, and the men of the city said to him, on the seventh day before the sun went down, what's sweeter than honey, and what is stronger than a lion? And he said to them, if you had not plowed with my heifer, you would not have found out my riddle. Another tip, guys. We don't call our wives heifers. <laughs> that may have been a cutesy name back then, but it is not anymore. 
But Samson, you can see what he's like. You can see the nature of him. You can see what his character is, right? He's not living according to the identity that he has as the deliverer of Israel. He's not living up to it. He shows zero respect for his parents, zero respect for God, zero respect for his friends, zero respect for his wife. All he cares about is what's right in his own eyes. It all seemed right to him, but what didn't seem right was that he lost the bet. And it made him furious. Verse 19 says, And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him, and he went down to Ashkelon, which is another major city of the Philistines. You think about as far away as if you're walking down to Lion's Bay. That's kind of the distance. So he get, he's, he's angry, and he's marching down there. And he struck down 30 men of the town and took their spoil and gave the garments to those who had told the riddle. In hot anger, he went back to his father's house. So he goes down to Philistine territory, murders 30 guys, takes their clothes, and gives them to his friends. And in doing so, then he marches away, leaves his wife behind, and he just storms off in anger back home to mommy and daddy. So again, you're seeing what he's like. I mean, Samson, you could have just gone and bought 30 sets of clothes and given them over, but... To murder men for it? Just to pay off his debt? Well, that seemed right to him. And it was right in his eyes. He was not acting as Israel's deliverer. Deliverer. He just did what was right in his own eyes. So what are your thoughts of Samson at this point? If we pause here, what do you... He doesn't look like a hero, I don't think. Looks more like a scoundrel. But if you think about the image of him and the, the life he's living and the disobedience and the entitlement that he has, you're looking at Israel's life personified here. The whole nation of Israel acted this way at this time. Anybody did what was right in their own eyes and they didn't worry about what the Lord thought. They just worshipped who they wanted. They worshipped the Baals. They worshipped in in any way they wanted. They just, whatever. It was right in their eyes. They're all idolaters, in other words. And when we hear that word in our culture, we hear the word idolater, we think, oh, like they, they worshipped these gods that were made out of wood or stone, and they placed them on their mantle above their fireplace and prayed to them and bowed to them or whatever, and then they just went apart and lived their normal life. Well, but idolatry is a lot more than that. Idolatry, really, and what the idolatry that we see in Samson here is the idolatry of self, which is something that we're, more, we're a lot more accustomed to. Because the thing is, in the West, in Canada, Squamish, we like to do what's right in our own eyes, too. We like to do what's right in our own eyes. This is kind of the push of the whole culture, isn't it? And it has been for the last who knows how many decades, right? Nike, just do it. Or if it feels good, do it. We all hear these. If what happens in Vegas, what happens in Whistler stays in Whistler. If it's right in your own eyes, do it. And this is the 
the, the culture isn't just accepting of everything, they're actually pushing it on us. We get this pushed on us everywhere, from in the, in the media, in the celebrities, to in our schools, pushing this whole idea of that you can be any gender you want along the whole gender spectrum. There aren't just two genders, like the Bible tells us. No, there's many, and you can pick anyone you want, whenever you want. And this is the push of the culture on us, to do what's right in our own eyes. You can sleep with whoever you want. It doesn't matter that your family, maybe your tradition that you grew up in, whether that be a Christian tradition or a Muslim tradition or even some other just kind of Western traditional family. It doesn't matter what your family has told you, that you should wait till you're married and just be with one person. No, no. Go do whatever you want with whoever you want. Do what's right in your eyes. Do what's right in your eyes. Yet when it comes to somebody like doctors who don't want to do what's right in their patient's eyes, such as euthanasia or end their life before the natural course takes place, well, no, the doctors can't do what's right in their own eyes. It's only the patient who gets to do what's right in their eyes. But our culture is preaching this madness at us all the time. No matter where we go, no matter what we watch or listen to, you watch movies, you see this, you listen to music, you see this. There's the push on us from all over the culture to do what's right in our own eyes. But the, the fact is, the biggest problem isn't even out there. The biggest problem is in here and in here. The biggest problem isn't the fact that the culture is preaching this to us. It's the fact that our hearts are prone towards doing this already. And the culture is just doing what we want to hear. Even as Christians, we wander our own way. We do what we feel like doing. That might be something like keeping a dark secret about what you watch online at night. That might be something about keeping even a dark secret about something that you've done in the past and not wanting to fess up to it, not wanting to seek forgiveness. It might be cheating on your taxes. It might be gossiping about your neighbor's wife. We like to do what's right in our own eyes, and we don't act according to our identity. See, as Christians, we're given a new identity When we put our faith in Christ, we are given the identity of Christ, actually. We are little Christs. That's what Christian means. We are covered by the blood of Christ. Our sins are washed away. We are given the righteousness of Jesus. And that is the identity that we're supposed to act in. But we have this struggle inside us, this internal struggle that wants to live according to the old way, not according to the new way. But when we're we're Christians, we find this struggle A lot. So what are we supposed to do? Well, the Christian's life is a walk. You often hear people say, it's a walk with Jesus. And yes, it is. And every step is believe and repent. And believe and repent. 
Because you will find this struggle throughout your life. You will find this desire to want to do things that you know you're not supposed to do. Even the Apostle Paul says, I do what I don't want to do. And yet the things I'm supposed to do, I don't do. So if the Apostle Paul struggled with that, if every Christian that you see in the New Testament struggled with that, Peter, the Apostle struggled with things like this, you're going to struggle too. But the fact, you don't run away from Christ then. You don't run away from the faith. Instead of running away from God when you're sinning against him, you run to him. That's what repentance and faith is. It doesn't just happen in those outward sins. It happens in self-righteous things too. When we think that we're earning God's favor because we read through the Bible in a year or we attend church the way we should, yet our hearts are hard and we, we judge those outside the church and we say, those dirty sinners, oh, I'm glad I'm not part of them. We're like the Pharisee who says, Lord, thank you that I'm not like this dirty tax collector beside me. See, we can sin in those outward ways, but we can also sin in these self-righteous ways. And of both of these things, we need to repent. Meditate on God's word. Allow the spirit to speak to us through his word, because that's where you're going to get strengthened. That's where you're going to get your defenses against your own sin and against the pushes of the world, is, is listening to God's word, spending time in community, Giving and serving in the church as the New Testament commands. The Christian life isn't one of just me and Jesus, kind of easy believism, and oh, I can be a Christian without going to church, or without giving to the church, or without serving in the church. No, Jesus died for his bride, who is the church. The church local, the church universal, the church visible, the church invisible. These ideas that there is a local body of believers that we must be committed to, but there's also this global, uh, global uh, body of believers who we don't even know who they are or where they are, but we are all part of the body of Christ. So there is a very communal aspect to being a Christian. It is not just an individual thing. Individualism which really makes us push against things like being accountable to a body or being a member of a body or giving to a body. Individualism is the American dream, not the Christian dream. Without prayer and the Holy Spirit teaching us through God's word, we are left open and defenseless against the attacks and the temptations that will come. So we need to repent and believe. You know what the thing is, though? Even when we aren't doing that how we should, God still accomplishes his goals. And we're going to see that coming up here in the next verses with Samson. So if you remember at the beginning, it said that the Lord was seeking an opportunity against the Philistines. Well, we're going to see that opportunity come to fruition here. Chapter 14, verse 20 says, And Samson's wife was given to his companion, who had been his best man. Oh dear. Samson's not going to be happy. 
After some days at the time of the wheat harvest, Samson went to visit his wife with a young goat. <laughs> it's the goat again. I guess, like, forget flowers. I mean, wives, like, don't you want a goat? Guys, when you go to the Savon today, come home with a leg of goat for your wife. She'll be happy. And he said, I will go into my wife in the chamber. I don't need to explain that further. But her father would not allow him to go in. And her father said, I really thought that you utterly hated her, so I gave her to your companion. Is not her younger sister more beautiful than she? Take her instead. Great men in this story, hey? Just, yeah, you don't, you don't, no, you know, take this daughter instead. Come on, she's just, yeah, take her, come on. And Samson said to them, this time I shall be innocent in regard to the Philistines when I do them harm. So Samson went and caught 300 foxes and took torches, and he turned them tail to tail and put a torch between each pair of tails. And when he had set fire to the torches... He let the foxes go into the standing grain of the Philistines and set fire to the stacked grain. So this isn't just grain growing. This is harvested already. They had put in all the work. They had brought it in and stacked it, ready to go for winter. And Samson burns it. Their whole food source for the coming winter. Well, this is an act of war. Then the Philistines said, who's done this? And they said, Samson, the son-in-law of the Timnite, because he has taken his wife and given her to his companion. And the Philistines came up and burned her and her father with fire. And Samson said to them, if this is what you do, I swear I will be avenged on you. And after that, I will quit. And he struck them hip and thigh with a great blow. And he went down and stayed in the cleft of the rock at Edom. So this hip and thigh idea just means he absolutely humiliated them. By himself. All these men attacked him and he just totally, he beat them to a pulp and embarrassed them in the fight. And then he left. And then the Philistines came up and encamped in Judah and made a raid on Lehi. This is a war encampment. So the Philistines see this and they're like, this is an act of war now. And if we can't go get Samson, we're going to go threaten the entire nation of Israel. And so they encamp at Lehi, and they raid the town, and Israel's going, what's going on? Why are you guys attacking us? Look at their response. And the men of Judah said, why have you come up against us? And they said, we have come up to bind Samson, to do to him as he did to us. And then 3,000 men of Judah, Israelites, went down to the cleft of the rock of Edom and said to Samson, do you not know that the Philistines are rulers over us? What then is this that you've done to us? Samson, come on. We're trying to live at peace with these people. So you see the, the heart of the Israelites at this point. They don't, they don't even want deliverance anymore from these people. They don't even see the ruling of the Philistines as being oppressive. They just, they're like, no, we're living at peace with them. Yeah, we worship their idols, whatever. It doesn't matter anymore. And they gang up on Samson. And he said to them, as they did to me, so I have done to them. And they said to him, we have come down to bind you that we may give you into the hands of the Philistines. In other words, Samson, we're going to hand you over so we can be at peace. 
And Samson said to them, Swear to me that you will not attack me yourselves. They said to him, No, we will only bind you and give you into their hands. We will surely not kill you. And so they bound him with two new ropes and brought him up from the rock. When he came to Lehi, the Philistines came shouting to meet him. And the word shouting is the same word that was used for roaring of the lion. So you know what's coming, right? Then the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him, and the ropes that were on his arms became as flax that had caught fire, and his bonds melted off his hands. And he found a fresh jawbone of a donkey and put out his hand and took it. So here's a donkey standing here, and oh, I'll just take that. Rips, it, rips a jawbone out of a donkey and strikes down a thousand men. So I had a jawbone. Is it there? Yeah, there it is. So that's what a, that's, this is what like a dried, cleaned one looks like, right? So you imagine he takes this nasty jawbone of a donkey and he's striking down a thousand men. It's fresh. It's not brittle. It's not going to break. He's just wiping out these guys and he's having fun with it. He actually sings a song and says, with the jawbone of a donkey, heaps upon heaps. With the jawbone of a donkey, have I struck down a thousand men? He has no problem doing this. You can see, I mean, what strength and power was in him to make this happen. And as soon as he had finished speaking, he threw away the jawbone out of his hand. And that place was called Ramath Lehi, which means jawbone hill. And he was very thirsty. Of course he would be. You just kill a thousand guys with a donkey's jawbone, it's going to be tiring. So he says... So he calls upon the Lord, and he says, You have granted this great salvation by the hand of your servant, and shall I now die of thirst and fall into the hands of the uncircumcised? So he finally acknowledges that God is there and that God has given this victory to him. But how does he do it? He just demands more. Like, come on, God, what have you done for me lately? Where's my water? But amazingly, God actually gives him what he wants. And God split open the hollow place that is at Lehi, and water came out from it. And when he drank, his spirit returned, and he revived. Therefore, the name of it was called en It is at Lehi to this day. And he judged Israel in the days of the Philistines 20 years. That's the end of the text for today. So even though Samson finally acknowledges God, right, like he still has that arrogance about him and that attitude of him being the man, him being able to just demand what he wants from God, and and God gives it to him. Even in his wickedness, even in his sin, God gives him what he wants. And then there's this phrase that we haven't really talked about much so far that we saw a few times, the spirit of the Lord rushed upon him. It comes three times in, what we, in our text that we read. It said it happens before he kills the lion. It happens before he kills the 30 men and, at Ashkelon and takes their garments. And then it happens right here near the end before he kills the 1,000 men. The Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him in these things. So the question that we should all ask here is why in the world would God do that? Why would a good God use a rotten man's rotten actions 
Why would a good God do that? Well, the fact is that even in our sin, God is sovereign over us. Even in all the rottenness we experience and suffering we experience in life, God is still sovereign. He's still in control. That can be a really hard thing sometimes to get our heads around. How can a God who is all loving and merciful and gracious allow these things to happen? But he does. And this is a tension that the Bible shows us and we have to live with. We have to see God being good and wise and holy and true and still being in control even as all the wickedness unfolds around us. And in the Bible, we see things happen. We see verses like in Romans that tell us that God uses all things for the good of those who, who are called according to his purpose. And so as we're going through these things, it's not easy, right? Like, as we're going through suffering, even as we're sinning, it's like, how in the world is this, how in the world is, can God use this for his glory and for the good of me and for the good of his kingdom? Well, in Genesis, we actually see an example of where it is used. We see Joseph who has 12 brothers. And he is, uh, as he is living with them, and he is blessed by God and blessed by his father, and his brothers get all jealous, and they take him, and they beat him up, and they throw him in a hole, leave him for dead. But then they actually decide, no, we're going to sell him into slavery. So they sell him off into slavery, and he is suffering every step of the way. And then finally he gets into slavery, he's working for this guy named Potiphar, and his wife takes a liking to him and says, hey, Joseph, come on, buddy, come to my bedroom. And he will have nothing to do with it, and as he's running away, she makes, he leaves his coat behind, and she makes up this story of how he tried to abuse her and be with her when he, she didn't want, and so Potiphar gets mad, and even though he's been a great servant, throws him in jail because of the story that's made up against him. And so Joseph just gets, he's getting beat from every angle and every corner of his life, no matter what happens, <clears throat> even though he is, he's obedient to the Lord and he's following the Lord and all these bad things are happening. And then while he's in jail, he interprets dreams because the, the Lord gives him these interpretations for these guys' dreams and then Pharaoh hears about it and says, oh, well, I've got a dream too. Next thing you know, Joseph's sitting at the right hand of Pharaoh, second in command in the kingdom. And all of a sudden, when the whole area is in famine and Egypt is prospering still, his brothers show up. And they come up and they don't recognize who he is. And he's going like, oh my goodness, I can't believe my brothers are here. And he has to go and hide because he's scared and he's crying and he can't believe that they're there. And... And he puts them through these tests to see if his father's still alive, to see if they actually are there with good intentions. He doesn't really trust them, right? 
And he ends up revealing himself to them, and yet they're still scared that he's going to exact revenge on them after their father dies. And so they come to him, and they're scared, and he goes, brothers, listen, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. What you meant for evil, God meant for good. And to bring, about, bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. You see, because of all those terrible things that happened to Joseph in his life, he was all of a sudden in this situation where he could bless thousands, he could bless nations in this time of famine and show the Lord's faithfulness. So the Lord is wise and good and holy. And even when we go through things that seem awful, that are awful, the Lord has a plan for it. So as Christians, people's actions against you don't determine your identity. So whether somebody has abused you or done something stolen from you or treated you bad or whatever, they don't determine your identity, okay? God determines your identity, and he has said that you are his. You are his in Christ. And even your actions don't determine your identity. You might be running away from God right now, and you know it's wrong. And you know that you're running away from him and that you shouldn't be doing what you're doing, and yet you're still doing it, and you don't want to go back because you're actually enjoying what you're doing. But the fact is that when you put your faith in Christ, you were redeemed, and you were bought with the blood of Christ, and you are his, and you need to repent, and you need to go back and run to him, and he will forgive you, and he will lavish you with his grace and love and mercy. And no matter what it's done, you confess up to it, and you can take any consequences that the world will give you, and nothing will change the fact that you are his child, and you have an eternal life ahead with him. But you do need to repent. But God used Samson to drive a wedge between Israel, he used Samson, this wicked guy and his wicked actions, to drive a wedge between Israel and their oppressors. And now he has used the cross to drive a wedge between us and our sin. And he has taken us, and he has said we are his. And he has brought that act of war and judgment against our sin through the cross. So if you've been wandering like Samson and you're far from God right now, repent. Believe in Jesus. His grace is sufficient for you. Let's pray.